0: turn with me to Matthew chapter 27 and uh, this morning this is going to be really um, I I think this is when I look at Matthew the focal point of the book of Matthew that uh, Pastor Bill Holdridge when he started teaching through the book of Matthew and then I came we went through Nehemiah and then we picked up again in Matthew all of that time up until now focuses on today And I was praying about it and looking at Matthew chapter 27 and absolutely um, we're inadequate for this message. We're inadequate to deliver it because this is really the good news. This is the gospel right here encapsulated. And so this morning I would like you to read with me in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 27 and it says this, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place, called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. And when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Okay, let's pause here. When we consider the king's cross, Jesus came with a specific focus. He came for a specific mission. He knew that he was co- coming to this part in history, which was going to make a difference in all of, all of the world. There was no day, there was no incident, there was no thing ever in the history of the world that was as important as as this day. Because on this day hinges the whole reason that we either have hope or don't have hope. So one of the things that we see is that Jesus was on trial, but really he was the one that put others on trial. Remember last week when Pastor Bill was teaching, here's Pilate that's standing before Jesus and Pilate is, is frustrated because he doesn't see anything wrong with this man. And Pilate is, is in a sense, kind of shaking. He's used to seeing men beg for their lives. He's used to seeing men um, just plead with him and, and cajole with him and ask him uh, to let them go. And Jesus is silent. And he wonders, why won't he even speak to me? And really one of the things that we find out it w- is it wasn't Pilate that was putting Jesus on trial, but Jesus that was putting Pilate on trial. Do you remember then the trial was for the people? Because they asked should we let this man go or should we let Barabbas go? And they all shouted, Barabbas. So Barabbas was the one to be set free and Jesus was the one to die on that day. And again, it wasn't Jesus that was on trial. It was the people that were on trial. And really that became your trial and my trial. And it becomes the question, what do we do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Because it is not enough to say, well, Jesus was on trial, I I see that. There, there's no neutrality with God. And that really kind of blows me away because so many times we just wanna be neutral. I think that's something about our culture in 2013 is um, I think sometimes we, we don't wanna make a stand for something that is true. We don't wanna make a stand because it's gonna make division. It's gonna divide maybe a household. It might divide people at work. It might divide your neighborhood. And so we're into this political correctness in which, you could say hey your belief is okay as long as you don't say that your way is the way or your truth is the truth it can be a truth it can be one of several ways but when Jesus said i am the way the truth and the life there's no neutrality with that it becomes a very controversial someone sneezes at work god bless you no big deal right the president can come up and say god bless america and, and what happens? Everyone cheers. Yeah, God bless America. No big deal. But when you say something about Jesus, if you say Jesus is Lord, if you say Jesus is the way, if you say Jesus is God, all of a sudden the hair on people's neck begins to stand up and they get offended and they say, well, why do you say that? So much so that it causes antagonism towards the name of Christ there's so much antagonism towards the the name of Christ that you even see bumper stickers that are anti-christ now it's one thing for someone to have a sticker about Jesus and and that's that person's own thing because they they follow Jesus can you imagine we have stickers today that mock Jesus they they kind of make fun of the whole fish thing or or that, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. They say things like dog is my co-pilot or, you know, whatever. And, and there's all these things that, that really kind of come. Can you imagine if you had a sticker today that mocked Islam? What would happen? Not only Not only would you be in danger, but everyone would say what? Why are you doing that? How can you be so hateful? Why are you mocking these people? Why are you doing this? But to Christ, it's okay because it's open game. And you know what? I want to say this with understanding. You know what? It is good that it is that way. And let me explain why it's good that it's that way. Because Jesus was that way. What we're going to find out in Matthew chapter 27 is that Jesus is mocked openly. And as he's mocked openly, here's the the creator of the universe. Here is God in human flesh that is mocked. He is spit upon. He is made fun of. And yet you don't see Jesus rallying troops together you don't see Jesus just looking at someone and doing the Darth Vader death grip on his throat you know I would have done that that would have been me I would have lifted the guy up and I would have just choked him out and yet Jesus doesn't do that because the only way into the kingdom of God is humility the only way to this relationship with God is by humbling ourselves See, they, they wanted to make Jesus the Messiah by force, saying, he's the one that's gonna deliver us. G- uh, Peter has the sword. He, he wants to fight. Everyone ex- is expecting Jesus to kind of fulfill their role of what the Savior should be. And Jesus said, no, I came in a different way. And one of the things that we are going to find out is that in the midst of this trial, Jesus is mocked openly. He's mocked by the people and as they take him out, they, they stripped him. And and I, I just want to preface this morning's message with this. There's going to be a certain tone in this. And, and I, I want to make sure that we understand that the tone in this is to understand that when we read this, the story and the message of the gospel and what Jesus did should never get old. There should never be a time that we read it where it doesn't, oh, oh this is, it becomes anesthetized where um, it's something where we wear jewelry. You know, when Deanna and I got married, she gave me a cross necklace and, and I, to me, it's very special, it means something. But in our world today, crosses are all over the place for many different things. Unless we should read this text without remembering the significance of what happened on this day, there's gonna be a certain tone in it and I'm gonna bring certain things out that the gospel writers didn't have to bring out in detail because everyone in that culture understood what a crucifixion was. They understood that. There was a a, a day in history that, when you read about the Romans, where they crucified over 2,000 people on a given day. There was a a thing where they never had to explain um, in graphic detail what happened on that day because as people would enter into town, Lining the road coming into town would be crucified criminals as, a, as a, a, a way to say at the city gate, if you would break a law in this city, this is what's going to happen to you. It wouldn't be uncommon for mothers to cover the, the eyes of their children because there would be grown adults hanging on these crosses and the birds would actually come and land and start picking at the carcasses sometimes even before the person was dead. Bugs would come and and infest, there would be flies. See, these things are written for us in, in a way that to the original audience, they understood that. But for us this morning, may we never forget when Jesus said, if anyone desires to be my disciple, if you want to really follow me, you have to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And they understood the cost that came with being a believer that to us as Christians in America today, I know nothing of that cost. I really don't. I, I, I think that we are to count the cost, but I don't understand the cost the same way that people in other places in the world, even today, understand this cost. So Jesus was stripped. Nothing more humiliating than being stripped. I think that we've all had embarrassing moments. My first day teaching, so I was teaching at a public high school. Uh, I had a student named Jeff Scobie that became just a problem student, uh, always class clown, um, just trying to hijack the class and take it another way, I will forever be thankful to Jeff Scobie because on my first day of teaching at a public high school, in first period, he came up to me and said, hey, teach, your flies open. And I, I sat back down and I zipped up my zipper and afterwards, I, I, knelt down to, I just leaned down and I said, thank you. And, and that, can you imagine, I, I might not have been a teacher after that. That could have been like my last day teaching. And he saved me from some humiliation that, that we would think that's humiliating, right? Jesus was, was stripped. His clothes were taken off of him. He was put out and thrust into the public before them. I don't know if you've ever seen any of uh, the pictures or the movies about the Holocaust. But nothing more humiliating than the, the Jewish people being stripped naked and being forced in, in, in like cattle cars to be placed up in front of others. If you've ever seen pictures or seen depictions of what happened in slavery here in our nation, that slaves were stripped naked and just sold really for, for, for livestock, for what they could do. Here is the creator of the universe, the one that has shown compassion, the one that has shown mercy, that is stripped naked before them. And when they did that, they put a scarlet robe on him. Notice in verse 29, they twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. Now, the crown of thorns is not like we think of a thorn bush like a rose. These are up to two-inch thorns that were literally pressed on to his skull. If they were small thorns, they wouldn't have stayed on. They literally pressed this crown of thorns, possibly from the, the branch of the tree that I showed you a couple of weeks ago, and just press them into Jesus' skull. He's wearing a scarlet robe, and they begin to mock him. I just want you to imagine for a moment that this isn't 2,000 years ago, but I just want you to imagine, what would that be like today? Can you you imagine that? Can you imagine the horror of what that would be like to have a public trial and execution like that? They bowed the knee. They they put a, a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him. It says in verse 29, they mocked him and they said hail king of the jews and i want you to notice that when they're saying this hail king of the jews it's not the jews that are saying hail king of the jews because the jews were saying that's not our king no that's not our king and the romans are saying that is not our king that's your king and everyone is saying at this point in time no he's not my king he's not my king no he's not he's not my king and you know what, this morning there's a rejection of Christ today that people say he is not my king. He might be a historical figure, he might have lived, you know there's evidence of that outside of the Bible, but he's, he's not my king. He might be a, a good religious figure, but he's not, he's definitely not king. And it says that they mocked him, and in verse 30, then they spat on him, and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. Now, when they spit at Jesus's face and they mocked him, this is not really really a part of the legal punishment. The crucifixion death, that's part of the punishment. He got the death penalty. The scourging, the 39 lashes, that was part of a punishment. You know what the spitting in his face is for? The spitting in his face is just because they wanted to. The spitting in his face is just because they said, I hate you. It was vitriol, it was bitterness, it was just anger at Jesus. So they came and they spit at him. Just imagine lining up and just spitting in his face. They're doing this and and as they come to him, they take the reed that is in his hand and then they, they strike him on the head. And then they mocked him and they took the robe off of him again and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. See, when it comes to the mockery, our pride will not allow us to be mocked. Do you ever notice that someone might be willing to die for a cause? In fact, they might even be willing to die for Jesus. But yet, if their friends start making fun of them, it's a whole different game. See, when we're mocked, no one wants to be mocked. Think about what that was like in school. Do you remember that? Do you remember what it felt like to be made fun of? Maybe you remember some of the harsh nicknames that still stick with you. Maybe you remember some of the things that that people said to you, maybe to your children. And that really hurts, right? When our kids get mocked, our kids get made fun of. See, our heavenly father had a son that his son was being mocked openly. I I don't know about you, but there's something about us as, as parents, something about me as parents, that it hurts deeply if I feel like my kids are being isolated, being made fun of, being ostracized. Here's our heavenly father that sees his son being mocked and Jesus openly being mocked. It says that they led him out to be crucified. And and, and I want you to see this. When Jesus is being led away to be crucified, this is not Jesus being taken against his will. This is his will. The whole time when Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me this was the picture that he had in mind because he was not only giving them a a verbal um, explanation of what it means to be a disciple, he was going to show them this is what it looks like to be a disciple. It says that they led him away to be crucified and and, and as they did this, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross. Remember, Jesus talked about picking up your own cross, now now we know some things about Simon by name. We know that in the book of Mark, uh, he's the father of a guy named Alexander and Rufus, and when Mark writes his gospel, he's saying it to the church as though everybody already knows these guys. It's assumed that they already understand who these guys are. And according to historical writings, um, Simon became a missionary because he's from Cyrene, and, and so he actually becomes a, a, he's from Libya, He's a, a, from a part of Africa that actually becomes a Christian and probably is the one that, that takes the gospel to Africa. So on this day, he's there to worship. On this day, he's simply there on the Passover. He's a bystander. And all of a sudden, they, they take him out of the audience. And, and the, they take him out of the street and they say, here, bear his cross. And, and they put the cross upon him. And the cross beam would really be the part that they would, they would put on his back Now, I just want you to think that these cross beams were heavy beams of wood, up to 125 pounds of wood on his back. Here's Jesus, who was a strong young man. Um, I know that he ate well because he wasn't a glutton and he ate according to the law. I know that he never overate. I know that he was a hard worker. Jesus was strong, and yet in the midst of this, he has had no sleep. He has had nothing to eat for a couple of days. He he has had no um, rest. He's been beaten. He's been punched. Um, remember that there was a bag that was put over his head and they, they socked him in the face and they said, prophesy who hit you? I don't know if you've ever been cold cocked when, when you weren't ready for a punch, but to have a bag put over your head and you don't know it's coming and, and over and over who hit you and they punched Jesus in the face. All of these things, he was scourged 39 lashes the cat of nine tails his back was ripped open because at the end of this whip they would tie pieces of glass and metal and bone and it would literally latch in like a grappling hook and when they would pull the whip back it would rip pieces of flesh and take his skin with him and he's exposed and he's dehydrated and jesus at this time is stumbling and he's not able to carry this cross and so there's a man they say hey could you come over here and they they conscript him carry this cross and he does this and they come to this place this place called Golgotha that is to say place of a skull in in a few moments I'll show you a picture of what that place looked like this place called the skull is also called Calvary by which we get our church name Calvary a chapel is a gathering of people to worship and we come to worship because it was on Calvary That comes our faith. It was on Calvary, the reason why we even have hope, the reason why we're even here. They gave him sour wine mixed with gall to drink. There was an effect in which if someone were to take this sour wine with gall, there would be a numbing effect. But Jesus not only wanted his mind clear, but he wanted his body to be able to take the full force of all of this because he was taking upon himself your sin and my sin. There was no anesthesia for him. All of the punishment was going to be upon him. And then it says in verse 35, then they crucified him. The, 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 the method of crucifixion, it would be to take um, like railroad spikes When when it says that he was nailed to a cross, it wasn't like a hardware store, Home Depot nails. These were like railroad spikes that were driven through the most sensitive parts of his body, through his feet and through his hands and and through his wrist. And as they're, they're pounding down on Jesus, they would then launch them and drop the cross into place in which the weight of it would come crushing down. And in order to breathe, the victim would have to literally pull himself up by the weight of the hands and the the weight on the feet and on the nails, and it would cause more pain, but he would have to do this so his lungs would not collapse. And some of these people that were crucified historically would last for days, for days being mocked, for days of dehydration, for days not eating. And here's Jesus, every time he breathes, would have to literally pull himself up and do like a a, a pull-up almost, but yet on these nails that are driven through him so that he could come up for breath, and he would have to breathe in that way. And, And these criminals are crucified, one on his right hand and one on his left hand. They divided his garments, they cast lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Throughout the book of Matthew it says as it was written, as it was written, it fulfilled prophecy, it fulfilled prophecy. Because Matthew is the gospel that is written primarily to the Jews that says this is the king. This is the king of the Jews. And every time this is written, they understood these Old Testament passages and these scriptures. Jesus was the one that came to fulfill all of these things. Now, as Jesus does this, it says in verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him. They put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. We know in the other gospels that they they said, no, no, he only said that. And Pilate said, what what has been written has been written. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They put the sign over Jesus's head. And as he's there hanging on a cross, This is king of kings and this is Lord of lords. This is your king, this is my, he's the king of the universe, he's the king of the world. And whether or not we regard him as king doesn't make him less king. He is still king. Jesus is crucified, one thief on the right, one thief on the left. Now, these two robbers that were crucified with him, it says that they they blasphemed him. Notice in verse 39, it says, those who passed by, they blasphemed him they wagged their heads, they they shook their heads at him, they, they grit their teeth at him, and they said, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross, and I believe that they are inspired by Satan himself to mock in this way, do you remember that in the temptation, do you remember that before Jesus um, is, um, do you remember that when Jesus is baptized, before he starts his public ministry, he's He's led away into the wilderness. He's tempted, or, or right after that baptism, he's led away into the wilderness to be tempted. And do you remember that Satan continued to say, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. When, when we're mocked, it's one thing to be taunted and mocked from someone that is stronger than you. Okay? It, it's one thing to be mocked from someone that just made you look foolish and then mocked you because they made you look foolish. It is another thing to be mocked by someone that's weaker than you. I remember when I was probably in in eighth grade, I was in junior high, there was this kid at an elementary school. I was riding my bike to campus, and this kid, this probably fourth grader, he stuck his middle finger at me, I don't know why, started cussing at me and making fun of me and yelling at me, and I'm like in eighth grade or seventh grade. I'm not a Christian at the time, not walking with Jesus and I see this little fourth or fifth grader going off and like mocking me. And there is some self-righteousness and some, how dare you, that all of a sudden I turn my bike towards the school and start riding towards him. He sees me coming. He runs onto his campus. I ride my bike onto the elementary school campus. I get off my bike. I chase him down and I grab him. I say, what would you say? And he's shaking. And I said, don't ever say that again. And I yell at him and then I let him go. Now, anger problems, yes. But um, I, I did this. I just <laughs> I confess that I did this. And I'll just let you know, the thing that that caused me to do that is that there's this little kid that is mocking me. I can understand if it's a high school student, because I'm in junior high. High school student, I'd still be mad, but I probably wouldn't respond the same way, because he's a high school student, right? But This is a little elementary school kid. And here's Jesus who created these guys. Here's Jesus who knows the number of hairs on their head. Here's Jesus who has all the power in the universe and allows it to be so. And I share that with us this morning because I think it's so important that we as Christians, when we get mocked and we get made fun of and people come against us, Jesus said, I've given you an example. He's shown us an example. Because sometimes in our pride, I I will not be mocked. Do not mock me as a Christian because if you do, I will show you how strong and powerful I am. What attracts people to the gospel by that? Nothing. Nothing. I wanna say that something attracted one of the thieves on the cross to the gospel. It was that in the midst of being mocked, in the midst of being spit upon, and even by the thieves on one side and the other side, that at some point in time, he hears Jesus utter some words from the cross. And the people that are coming against Jesus and persecuting him, Jesus says something. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what the thief on the cross hears is that Jesus is praying not against them, but he's praying for them. Do you realize that Jesus prays for you? Do I realize that Jesus prays for me? And when I have been against Jesus and when I have sinned and even before I came to Christ, that Jesus prayed for me. Jesus prayed for you, that person that mocks you, that person with the bumper sticker, that person that mocks Christ openly, Jesus loves him, Jesus loves her, Jesus prays for him, Jesus prays for her. Is that my heart? Or is my heart crush him, God? Is my heart get rid of him, God, do something. Is my, is my heart mockery of them saying, well, you know, you're gonna have a great time burning because I'll tell you what, that's the attitude of many believers. And it's not the attitude of our Savior. It's not the attitude of our Lord. It says that when they were on the, the cross, I want to share this with you, this essence of the gospel in a moment, that one of the, one of the thieves, he, he turns. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But notice what it says here in verse 41. The religious leaders, the chief priests, these were the ones that should be leading people to God. They mocked with the scribes and the elders, all of the religious community. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. So our king is crucified. And then, He yields his spirit. Notice what it says with me in verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him the same thing. But I want you to turn with me to something that Luke records about one of these thieves. So we have Matthew, Mark, turn to Luke chapter 23. As you're turning to Luke chapter 23, I want to ask you a question What is the gospel of salvation? What is the minimum requirement, if you would, for someone to be saved? What does it take for someone to go to heaven? What does it it take for someone to be saved from hell? Because we have these things in our minds. And I think that this is one of the greatest examples in all of the Bible of what conversion looks like, of what it means to truly be born again for someone to be converted or regenerated it says in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 39. So one of the criminals, it says in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 38, said this. Um, there was an inscription um, also written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him and said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But then notice in verse 40, but the other, this is the other criminal, answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. I want you to think about what it takes for someone to be saved, for someone to go to heaven, for someone to be with Jesus. If we consider that these thieves on the cross, just hours before this, both of them were mocking Jesus. So just just previous to this, both criminals are mocking Jesus. something happens, and I really believe that it has something to do with when They hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That one of the thieves says, there is something different about this man because this man is more than a man. This man is something different than than any other man in my life I have ever seen. Because not only is he able to forgive, because it's hard for any of us to forgive those that have wronged us, but he's able to do it while he is in the process of being mocked. and and tortured and being put to death and it says this one of the criminals said um you know if you're the christ save yourself and us the other rebuked him here's the essence of the gospel of salvation this is what it takes to be saved he said to the other criminal do you not even fear god the first thing that he realized about jesus is that jesus is god do you not even fear god the second thing He says, "Seeing that you are under the same condemnation, we indeed justly we receive the due reward for our deeds." You know what he said? We sin. I'm a sinner. I am getting what I deserve. I am on this cross because I got what I deserve. You're on your cross because you got what you deserve. But this man is sinless. The essence of the gospel of salvation is this: We have sinned. Jesus has not. We've done something wrong. We've rebelled against God. We've tried to rule our own lives. We've hurt people. We've done things that that we know are wrong. Jesus has done no wrong. So Jesus is dying for something that he did not do. Really, he's dying for my punishment and your punishment. And then in verse 42, he said to Jesus, and here's the prayer of faith. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's your kingdom. And I know that there's a life after this life. And Lord, would you remember me? And you know what? This guy did not have time to come down off of the cross to be baptized, to receive communion. He did not have time to come down off the cross. In fact, he's at the very end of his life. I pray that we don't wait till that we're at the end of our life. There are deathbed conversions. But at this point in our lives, we have the opportunity to receive Christ. And what happens is this man at the end of his life has no opportunity to go and change the bad things that he has done. And he humbles himself and humility comes in and he says, Lord, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the essence of salvation right there. And turn with me back to Matthew, Matthew 27. It says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, from noon till three, up until this time, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. By the time it's broad daylight, brightest time of the day. And then here we get to this brightest part, high noon. And from noon until three, they call it the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all of the land. So darkness all of a sudden in the middle of day. If you read historians outside of the Bible, they talk about a time in which there was darkness for about three hours over all of the land. There's a darkness that happens. And just like in my heart, there's a darkness if I don't acknowledge God. It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus up to this point always calls God by father. Abba, Father. At this point, he says, my God, my God. And then he asks a question. Here's Jesus who knows all of the answers. Have you ever wondered why? You wonder why did bad things happen? God, why did this person have to die? God, why did this person hurt me? When I was a child, why did that happen to me? Why did my, my husband, why did my wife leave me? Why did I do this stupid thing that I regret for the rest? Why, why, why? And we ask God why. And sometimes we get frustrated because God doesn't understand how we feel. Jesus here understands exactly how you and I feel because all of the guilt, there is something divine and mysterious that is happening right here on the cross. There's a transaction that has taken place. And the most condemnation and guilt that you have ever felt in your life I just want you to think about times when you have felt condemned and guilty. I'll tell you that there have been times where I just I just wanted to be numb. I just I wanted to not be conscious. I just wanted to not exist because I felt so guilty at times and so condemned. And all of those feelings that you and I have ever had were placed on Jesus at this point in time. Because he felt as you felt and as I felt. He felt like a liar. He felt like a thief he felt like an adulterer. He felt like a murderer. He felt like a blasphemer. Because at this point, this divine transaction is happening where all of the sins of the whole world were placed on Jesus. And darkness covers the whole land. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt like God has left you, forsaken you? Well, guess what? Jesus felt that way. And as Jesus feels this way, he cries out in this loud voice. And some of those who stood there, when they heard it, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. Now this sponge that is offered at the end of a reed, um, they used sponges as we were in Israel. And our tour guide explained that this was something that was very common that they would use in, in public restrooms, They would use it to clean up a mess. They would use it for for things that were filthy. And it was placed at the lips of Jesus. And I just think about someone shoving a sponge in his mouth like that. You know, shut up in a sense. Maybe they they think, oh, this is a good thing to do. But you know what? There was a mockery with it. It was a, a, a thing that had no hygiene. There was no respect in this. And I just want you to think for a moment that Jesus's mother was there. Jesus's friends were there watching from afar. It says that these people that follow Jesus, they all came and they saw this happening. And you know what struck me about this time? Every time it's like I study the gospels, there's something else that the Lord brings. And to my heart, I love my kids so much. I cannot imagine my kids being tortured. I cannot imagine my kids going through what they were going through if they were to go through something so horrendous. And I just want you to imagine that they're seeing this. And Jesus here from the cross says to John, behold your mother and to Mary, behold your son. You guys are family, take care of one another. You guys are family now. What he says to us is your family, take care of each other. Jesus here on the cross cries out again with a loud voice in verse 50. And it says, he yielded up his spirit. No one took it from him. He didn't die from the, The scourging, which many men would die from the scourging. He didn't die from the dehydration. Jesus died because he willingly yielded up his spirit. In verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. This, This large, thick veil hung from the top of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. It was God himself that tore the temple veil so that we could enter in. Because behind the veil is the Holy of Holies. Behind the veil is the very presence of God represented. And when Jesus dies at this point in time, the veil is torn, we could come into the presence of God. We can have communion with him. We can fellowship with him. The gospel is a gospel that says Jesus paid it all because what else did he cry at this point in time? We know from the other gospels that he said, it is finished the word tetelestai in Greek means it is paid in full. It's not paid in part. It's not, I paid this, and now you go out and, and obey all the commandments and live a good moral life, and if you do all of these things, then you too will be saved. He said, it is finished. We live a good life out of response to what he's done, but it never earns us salvation. It was finished. It was done. And if you and I ever feel like I'm so far from God, I have to get better. I gotta do more work, I gotta stop sinning, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. In order to get past that veil, then Jesus died for nothing. But Jesus died for something because he completed the work. In the book of Genesis, on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. Why? Because the work was completed. We enter into our Sabbath rest because the work has been completed. Therefore, we don't work for salvation, we work because we have been saved. We work because Jesus is a worker. We work because he's done these things for us. And it says in verse 52, the graves, were, or verse 51, the earth quaked, rocks were split. Graves were opened, Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew is the only gospel writer that includes this. I don't know how long these guys stayed around. I don't know if they died again. I don't know if they, they were resurrected when, you know, when, uh, ascended, when he ascended. But after his resurrection, there's some guys that are walking around. And like, hey, I, you, you were dead, and I don't know what's going on, but you're walking around. And all of a sudden, all of these things are spread throughout the whole region. And it says in verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar. Among whom were Mary, uh, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And by the way, James and John's mom, when Jesus was alive, they said, Grant that one of my sons would be on your right hand and one on your left hand when you entered your kingdom. I believe that when they were there at the cross and they saw Jesus being crucified between these two thieves that all of a sudden it struck her what she was asking. And then then finally, the king's tomb. We'll get into the resurrection next week, but we'll just read this and we'll close. When evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also became a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees, they gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days, I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. These days were the darkest days for Peter. These days were the darkest days for the disciples. But I want you to notice that Jesus' enemies remembered that he said he was going to rise again from the dead. And Jesus' followers forgot. Jesus' enemies, they said, he said this. But yet in their hopelessness and in the bleak sense of, of Jesus being dead, his disciples, they thought it was over and that was the end of the story. See, here's a picture of Golgotha. When I went to Israel... I stood there and I took this picture. At the bottom of this, you can't see it in the scale, but just under the, the, this hill, there's a bus station. It's an Arab bus station. Um, a lot of noise, a, a lot of people traveling. It, it's noisy, you hear a horn, honk, honk. You hear, you hear people yelling and shouting. There's people selling things right at the bottom of this hill as though it never had happened. You see some buildings off to the the right there just barely. And at the top of the hill, you see just a, a few little structures. There's no fanfare at this hill. There's nothing special about it. But when I stared at the hill, I I wept. When I stood at the hill, I was in awe. I want you to see that at least in my eyes, I see two eye sockets. I see what looks like a place called the Skull. This is the place called Golgotha. And I remember just standing there and just... Just looking at this, this is where it all happened. This is where it took place. And the bottom line is, what was it that happened on that day? Was it just that a good man died? Was it just that an itinerant preacher, a carpenter's son died a cruel death? No, the bottom line is this. The bottom line was that on that day, 1 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know what happened on that day? Jesus became sin for us. Do you know what happened on that day? On that day, we by faith can become the righteousness of God. I don't don't understand it fully. I only know that Jesus has offered this and I know that that transaction has taken place And I know that because of that, the gospel, the good news is this. Jesus said to you and to me, to everyone that would hear, I'll trade places with you. Let me trade. I'll take your sin and your punishment upon myself. You take righteousness. You take good standing with God. You take a reconciled relationship. You could have that. Let me take all of the guilt. Let me take your shame. Let me take your condemnation. Let me take your fear. Let me take your anxiety. Let me take your worry. Let me take your sense of I can't get to God. I'm not good enough. Let me take that upon myself and I'll give you something better. And as we close in prayer, I'm gonna have the worship team come up and lead us into this time of communion. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, what the elements of communion represent is what we've just read. In fact, if I would take one of these here, Today, our, our communion packet is uh, one of these packets because just because of, of time this morning, there are, are two layers. There's a thin layer where I would pull this off and there's a, there's a, a wafer, there's a, the bread here. And when I open up this foiled part, there's the, there's the cup. This is something that, that to me, I don't understand. But when I partake of this, what I mean by not understanding this is that I don't understand how I could become the righteousness of God. It doesn't make sense to me, but I know that God said this, this is how I'm gonna do it. And the only way that you could come to me is by humbling yourself to say, you're not gonna come because of understanding. You're not gonna come because you're good enough. You're gonna come by faith, realizing if this is the way that God decided to do it, I will choose to humble myself. And when I partake of the bread, it represents Jesus's body that was broken. Let's not do this lightly this morning without remembering what we just heard, what he went through on our behalf. When I partake of this cup, it represents Jesus's blood that was shed so that my sin can be forgiven and this transaction can take place. And so as we worship the Lord, if you have never received the gift of salvation, it's free because Jesus paid for it. It's not free just because it's free. It's free because he paid the price. And that transaction, this communion is for believers. This is for followers of Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, I'm going to invite you to take this back to your seat. And during this time of worship, as you pray and as you ask God to cleanse you and you thank him for what he's done, then during these these times of worship, you would just partake of the bread and cup on your own when you're ready to do that. But I wanna invite you, this is an open invitation and I'm not just inviting you, I am begging of you and I am imploring of you. If you have never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, please come up, please take this cup and this bread and please pray this prayer, Jesus forgive me because like the thief on the cross, I acknowledge who you are and what you've done for me. I want that relationship because it's not just about heaven here, it's about heaven plus it's about his presence and dwelling in our lives. It's about his spirit coming into our lives. It's about regeneration, being born again. And you know what? It's not religion, it's relationship. Not joining a church, but joining the church, joining his people. And so let's pray. And as the Lord would lead you, come up, take the bread and come back to your seat. And when you're ready to partake, that you would partake between you and the Lord. Father, we thank you for what this represents. Lord, we thank you for what you went through on our behalf. And we pray, God, that you would, at this time, remind us of the great transaction that has taken place. That for me, Lord, it's it's something that I I can never fully comprehend, that, Jesus, you became sin for me, that I might become righteousness. And, Lord, I pray that uh, you would cleanse us, cleanse me, I pray that by faith, when I receive this and partake of this time of communion, that you would draw near to me and to all of these people as well. Lord, I pray for anyone that is suffering, anyone that is sick. I pray for anyone that is weak, anyone that is discouraged, anyone, Lord, that feels so unworthy that today would be a day, Lord, that we look up, that when we partake of communion, you would lift our face to worship you. We thank you, Lord, we love you.